You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. Good to see everyone here tonight um, to worship the Lord. Um, earlier on we were singing, we are here for you. And uh, I used to think that was really all about where we were at that present moment, singing in a church. But really and truly we're in the world for him, 24-7. And we, we, we can't forget that. Well, usually Stuart gives us uh, a reasonable amount of time to prepare for speaking. So this time I got about two weeks, three weeks. And uh, started off preparing one message, realized it wasn't it, and uh, scrapped it. Well, it's not really scrapped, it will do some other time, maybe. And then started again, did another one, uh, got into that, and realized, no, that's not right either. And then, nine days ago, the after-church prayer group got together in Liza Bregar's home, and we had a, a kind of a, what would you call it, a little seminar from a Chinese pastor, He's a a Singaporean Chinese, has been in Australia more than half of his life. His name is Pastor Chek. And uh, he's been taking seminars in prayer all over the world. He's in about 17 different countries. He's been teaching this seminar. And has been seeing uh, wonderful results of prayer. And that really grabbed me um, because not only was he coming with this message, many others have been coming with this message around the church that we really need to get involved in intercession more, really need to raise the prayer if we want to see a real move of the Holy Spirit. We're blessed, we're seeing church growth, we're seeing uh, things that encourage us, but really, when God starts to move in terms of revival, uh, it dwarfs it and makes what we're experiencing right now uh, mediocre in many ways. And uh, so, I've been led down the road to speak on prayer, and the title of today's message is called A Call to Prayer. And uh, you may see some strange writing there below the English. That is deliberate. Uh, in the morning, we have quite a few people from the Arab community, um, Syrians, Iraqis, Egyptians, and Lebanese, coming to church now. And so that is for their benefit. I want to thank the Zaki family for going over the Arabic and making it all grammatically correct. Because, as you may be aware, Mr. Google doesn't always get it right. (laughs) And we don't want to offend anybody. (laughs) Thank you, Cam and family. So, um, we're going to talk today about about prayer. And um, this call to prayer is something that we really cannot ignore. To be truthful, we can ignore it. But if we do ignore it, there will be a whole other set of consequences. And consequences that we will... Um, live with for the rest of our lives and into eternity. I believe that um, God is calling his people to pray at this time. Because if we look around in the Western civilization, we can see that that it's at a low ebb. Um, A couple of years ago, I read a book by an Indian scholar called Vishal Mangalwadi, who is a a believer, and uh, he said that, um, we had this thesis um, that he was trying to answer. Is the sun going to set on the West and by that he meant is Western civilization finished. And he went through every aspect of culture uh, in the Western hemisphere, its music, its drama, its art, its uh, knowledge, um, its intellect, uh, its religion, and all of those things. And he examined it, how it had fallen and declined, how it had risen and how it had fallen. And he came to the conclusion that no, the sun must not set on the West. It doesn't have to if people would come back to the Lord. So I want to read a few verses from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If you've been around in the faith for a long time, you will have heard these verses many times. If you're new, it might be the first time. But uh, they'll be put, most of those words will be put up on the board, but if you have a Bible, please follow. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 11. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 11. And kids, it's not slurpy time. <laughs> 7-Eleven. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just seeing if you're still awake. Okay. Chapter 7, verse 11. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer. And have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. 
When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will also be there. Amen. Now Solomon had this uh, connection with God after the temple was built. We happen to be at the other end of this process. We are about to embark on the process of building a temple, so to speak, or rebuilding a temple, this one. And uh, I think it's much better that we have this information before we start to build them after. It might save us a lot of trouble because I have been around a few churches when there was a building program and uh, it became a, a divisive issue at times and a dangerous issue. And if we uh, come to the Lord in good time and in the right spirit, he will help us avoid those pitfalls. But I want us to look at the text here, especially verse 14. Take some principles from it. Look at the little word, the first word of verse 14 is the word if. Now, that gives us the heads up that there is a conditional promise coming along here. Parents are really good at conditional promises. Um, yeah, if you're uh, still um, you know, living in your parents' house or something like that, you will remember these conditions. Maybe if you've moved out and started your own family, you're now giving these conditions. If you clean up your room, I will do such and such. If you clean up your room, I will give you, um, I'll take you to McDonald's, for instance. Irresponsible parent. <laughs> Sorry, Rebecca. <laughs> Sorry, Emily. Yeah, I've got a couple of uh, McDonald's employees here. But um, you know the, 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 the thing it is, um, a conditional promise. I used to keep our kids going by saying, if you do such and such, I will give you half an onion. And then wondered why they, they never did anything. Yeah. No, but when there's a condition coming up, uh, we know we have to fulfill certain criteria before the promise will be given or fulfilled. And in this portion of Scripture, we have four conditions that are laid down to the people of God before God would actually act in healing the land and coming again to them. And the first one is humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. This implies that there was pride in the people of Israel in some ways or other. They were very proud of something. You know, they could have had reason to be proud because um, never before was there such wealth in the land of Israel than in the time of Solomon. He was a great uh, businessman, a great trader, who ended up bringing all kinds of luxury items and gold and silver and precious stones to Israel, creating a very, very, very strong kingdom. He had a great army. He had the best, he had the equivalent of the best fighters. You know, the, he had the F-16s and he had the Joint Strike Fighter 35 uh, and all the rest of it. But those were horses in those days and chariots. And all the other nations feared him. So there, was, there probably were reasons for pride in the Israelite camp. But the Lord said, if my people humble themselves. If we all examined our lives, I don't think we'd have to go very deep, really, before we would discover some form of pride or other. Human beings are a proud species. And pride was the problem in the first place when uh, Adam sinned. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to usurp a position or step up equal with God in many ways in uh, eating that fruit. And so humility is required for us before we can expect God to act on our behalf. If there's pride in my life, it must go. If there's pride in your life, it must go. Have a little think today about what area of my life is there pride, pride, in, pride in. And it might be good even if you're very close to someone you might, and you trust them, you might ask them, do you see pride in me and where is it? And if they're a good friend, they'll tell you. Then number two, the second condition is that we should pray. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray. 
You know, I think we all pray every day, and there have been surveys out there that show that most of the people in the Western society still consider that they pray. I don't know what the quality of their prayers are, but they still consider that they pray. But I don't think it's an ordinary kind of prayer that uh, the Lord is speaking to Solomon about here. I think it's a a more um, sustained, a more um, faith-filled prayer than what we're used to. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And I don't know if you know Jim Simbala. Anybody here, Jim Simbala, the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle? He, has, uh, he gave one of the most famous sermons of the 20th century. It was called, My House Shall Be Called a House of Prayer. And I encourage you to go to YouTube and look it up. Jim Simbala, My House Shall Be Called a House of Prayer. That would really uh, add to what I'm saying tonight in a wonderful way. Um, so let's make this house a house of prayer. Let's make Eltham Baptist be renowned for one thing above anything else, and that would be that it is a place where people pray, really pray, extraordinary prayer. That word will come up a little bit later on. I was reading an article by a man called Shane Eidelman, who was writing in Charisma magazine. Uh, and he asked this question, when was the last time a church dedicated as much time to prayer as to preaching? And uh, he didn't give an answer, but what he's really trying to say here is that we tend to put more emphasis on preaching than we do on prayer. And we tend to, I believe, we also tend to put more emphasis on worship songs than we do on prayer as well, which is really um, probably a little bit out of order. Um, But before you get too discouraged about um, the state of things in prayer, I want to give you an encouragement. Um, Lockie announced our prayer meetings on Wednesdays. You will know that on 4.12 nights, the prayer time is 6.30. Very good. Excellent. And at non-4.12 nights, it's 7.30. Fantastic. Do you know that our, non, that our 4.12 prayer night has increased 300% in two months? Can you believe that? Fantastic. We used to have two people, and now we've got six. <laughs> but do you know what? If we keep on increasing like that, we will have 1,512 people in a year's time. <laughs> then we'll need the MCG. But I believe we will grow. I, do, I hear some of the young people uh, committing themselves to the Wednesday night prayer time. And uh, I see them coming to do that. Um, why don't you consider committing yourself to one prayer meeting in the church for a week? That would be fantastic. Um, E.M. Bounds wrote a book on prayer, and in it he said, prayer is the life source for faith. Prayer is the life source for faith. Are you beginning to see in these days your faith wavering? Check your prayer life. Go back to that. See how it's going. Is it existent or non-existent? And depending on the state of your prayer life, that will give you an answer as to the state of your faith. Prayer is the life source for faith, the building block of the soul. When faith ceases to pray, it ceases to live. That's shocking, isn't it? So there's another two conditions to go. Humble yourselves, pray, and then seek God's faith. Shane Eidelman continues to say, in the West today, we have a form of microwave Christianity. And by that, he means just stick it in the microwave, press a button, and boom, it's ready in two minutes. He said, this is really not the way to go. Service times are cut just to over an hour. Prayer is glanced over and worship is, des- is designed to entertain the masses. People are bored. They say, so our services need more to be more appealing. He went on to say, church is boring because the power of God has vanished from many congregations. When I was down in South America in El Salvador in 1987, um, We went there in the time of war, but it was also a time of revival. Um, There were soldiers everywhere, but every night we would pass this little church, and every night of the week, there'd be meetings on in it. And I thought, my goodness, how can they be going to church every night of the week? What I didn't realize was these people were in the throes of revival, and they wanted to be there. The power of God was there, and so they didn't find it boring. They weren't made to go. 
they went because they wanted to go. But many churches in the West today, they're a little bit like Samson. The glory of the Lord has departed, but they don't know it. Judges 16.20. But there is hope for us, you know. There is hope. Just listen to this verse. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will heal their land, the Lord says. And then in Jeremiah chapter 29, God says, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 33 verse 3 says, Call upon me and I will answer. So there's, there's hope, real hope for us. The last condition that we need to fulfill before we'll see the Lord moving in power is to turn from our wicked ways. That's called repentance. This is all very, very basic, isn't it? If the church turns from its wicked ways and does, fulfills these conditions, the Lord will begin to heal Australia. Wouldn't that be wonderful? He'll begin to heal Australia. And uh, the call to prayer from Pastor Check that I was telling you about earlier on, he said, don't pray for the little things, you know, like uh, at the beginning, don't just pray for the specifics. Go right to the top and start praying for Australia. Or pray, for the, pray for the country. And then let the prayers percolate down to the specific. And uh, there is and there are many people in this nation calling for the Christians to pray for the nation. Australian Christian Lobby, Family Voice Australia, Pipes is a, another uh, prayer group. Uh, they're starting prayer groups up all over the place to pray for Australia. But one of the conditions is repentance. Let us not uh, be like uh, many today who are saying sin isn't really a, an issue. It's an old-fashioned word. It's... Um, a mental condition or something. No, we need to acknowledge that there is sin in our lives and we need to repent of it. The Bible says in Isaiah 59 verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin always separates us from God. And so if the members of a church are living in sin in any way, it will not be strange that there is no power in that church. So those are the four conditions that uh, are given. And then the Lord says, Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now the question is, does this passage only refer to Old Testament Israel or can this passage be applied to the church and to the nations where the churches live in these days? That's a question that we can pose and we could argue about that theologically, and we could argue about it theoretically until the cows come home. But I believe there are two ways in which we can prove that to be true or false. And the first way is to go back into history and look and see, has it happened in any other country other than Israel since that time? And uh, that's what we're going to do tonight. But then there's another way, and that is to actually put it into practice and prove that it is true or false. So if we would do all these four conditions... I believe that we would be able to, to categorically say this verse applies to today or not. And I hope that we can do both things. So tonight we'll look at the history and then we'll lay down a few practical ideas that we all can do to make this thing come about in this land, in this place, in this town. So that's what we're going to do. Um, there was a, a very well-renowned um, historian of revival called J. Edwin Orr. He was born in Belfast in the 1920s and uh, became the leading uh, authority on revival. And he said this, that what caused revival in the past was always concerted, united, sustained prayer. Concerted, united, sustained prayer. So why is there persistently in the Christian church such resistance against prayer? Why is there in our lives such a resistance to pray? Why do we find it hard to pray? I, I have to confess I don't find it easy to pray. Why is that so? Most of us, if we've been on the road for a while, we know about this verse in Second Chronicles, and we know that this kind of prayer and this kind of activity, humbling ourselves, praying, seeking God's face, turning from our wicked ways is in fact the answer to moral decline. But we haven't been able to see a huge movement yet 
in that. Why is that? Well, I believe it's because we as a church in the West have not given ourselves to concerted, united, sustained prayer. I don't think we have. Why is the prayer meeting the least attended meeting in the church? Why is that? We could automatically blame the devil, but we'll come to that later. So what does concerted mean? Concerted means jointly arranged and carried out. It's not just one little group or one individual. It's a group of groups coming together to arrange something. United means joined together in one spirit and for one purpose. And sustained means continuing for an extended period without interruption. Now, how long do you think is a sustained period? Um, One hour? One day? 24-7 for a week? 40 days? How about 100 years? How is that for a sustained prayer meeting? I said that this morning and uh, some people knew about the history. Others probably thought it was ridiculous. But there has been a sustained 100-year prayer meeting. And it happened in Herrenhut in Germany um, several hundred years ago when a group of Christians called the Moravians got together and established a prayer meeting which never stopped for 100 years. There was always somebody in that room praying, more than one person. And they, through that, began a great missionary movement which extended all the way to Ethiopia in those days, the Caribbean and places like that, far-flung places. People would uh, go off to the boat. They'd be given a few uh, bits of money, whatever they used in those days, marks maybe. And uh, down to the boat they went, and after that they were on their own. They packed their belongings in coffins, and off they went, knowing that they would never, ever be back. That's um, the fruit of 100 years of prayer. But maybe we can try... Uh, an all-night prayer meeting. How about that? I don't think we're too far away from doing that. How about a week of sustained prayer here in the, build, in the building for what we're about to do? Seeking the Lord for souls, seeking the Lord for guidance for our, our, our way ahead. I believe that will come about very shortly. Dennis Pollock, who was the founder or is the founder of Spirit of Grace Ministries, wrote in response to our question, why do Christians not pray? He said this, I am convinced that one of the major killers of prayer among the people of God is a problem of unbelief. Can can you believe that? Problem of unbelief. We don't really believe that God will answer us. We have to start believing he will. But you know, the reason that we most often cite for the reason we don't pray is because the devil stopped me from praying. I don't think that's fair on the devil. Um, He knows, of course, how powerful prayer is. And he does indeed do everything in his power to stop us praying. But we cannot always go around blaming him. It's our fault that we don't pray. And we have to admit that and we have to change. Now, let's go to one of these historical incidences of God changing a nation through prayer. And I want to take us to the United States as post-American Revolution time. It's um, after the year 1776 when the United States became independent from uh, Great Britain. And um, after that, there was a, a terrible moral slump. Wesley and Whitfield had been over there in the United States prior to the revolution. They'd be pre- preaching. That's John Wesley and George Whitfield. They preached and preached, and thousands came to know the Lord. And uh, the churches were revived. But that had passed, and now there was a moral slump. Um, there was drunkenness, profanity, alcoholism was rampant. Thousands of men were dying with alcohol-related diseases. And uh, it was a really low ebb. The church um, was described by the Chief Justice, John Marshall. He said, the church is too far gone ever to be redeemed, he said. He said that in the the late 1700s, early 1800s. The atheist thinker, Voltaire, was doing his thing around that time. And he said that within 30 years, Christianity will be forgotten. Uh, Just to remind you, that was 200 years ago. He was very wrong. On, uh, On an aside here, the woman who attended him as he was dying said, I never, ever, ever want to see 
another infidel die. Voltaire died in agony of soul. He had denounced Christ his entire life, but when he came to die, he was crying out for him and couldn't find him. Terrible state. One commentator said about the church in that time, it seemed as though Christianity was about to be ushered out of the affairs of men. Could we say this about Australia today? Perhaps we haven't got that far yet. But things are in decline. One of the evidences of that was last year in March, the Student Union of Sydney University decided to give the Evangelical Union an ultimatum. They said, either you allow your leaders to be non-Christians as well, or leave the student union. Now, thankfully, common sense prevailed, and the faith groups were allowed to remain uh, in their unique faith, and all the leaders could be of that faith. But is that a sign of what's happening here? So back to the 1700s and the early 1800s, the churches in the United States were losing more members than they were gaining. You know, Pastor Czech said, the only thing that's keeping the Australian church buoyant today are the immigrants. The only thing that's keeping the Australian church buoyant today are the immigrants. Because 15% of the people who come here from abroad are believers. And they're filling the, the churches or keeping the churches from going down in many, many places. You go around um, Box Hill, Boleyn and places like that, you'll find lots of Chinese congregations. You'll find... Um, different kinds of ethnic groups, uh, people from Burma um, and, and different other uh, groups. We here are beginning to see uh, quite a few people from the Middle East coming, obviously with the, the writing up here. And uh, so the white Australian population is turning its back on Jesus. And we've got to do something about that. Um, in the... Um, in a typical congregational church, the Reverend Samuel Shepherd of Massachusetts said in 16 years that he had not taken one young person into fellowship. 16 years. That is really bad. The Lutherans were so languishing in their, uh, in their trouble that they discussed uniting with the Episcopalians who were even worse off. The Episcopalian Bishop of New York, Bishop Samuel Provost, uh, quit functioning. He had confirmed that no. He had confirmed that no one. Oh, I have to say that again. He had confirmed no one for so long that he decided he was out of work, and he took up other employment. That was what was happening. So, how did God change those things around? Because we know that um, the United States did. The United States did change. Once again, J. Edwin Orr said, "All of this came about through the concert of prayer." And a lot of it was down to a man called Jonathan Edwards, who was inspired in turn by a man from Scotland called John Erskine, who wrote to Jonathan Edwards, calling him to prayer. Jonathan Edwards responded to this call to prayer by writing a book, which uh, he published, and he called this book, wait for it, a humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth pursuant to scripture promises and prophecies concerning the last time. That was just a title. <laughs> so in, that, in those days, the authors of books left you in no doubt about what their book was. Um, sometimes we get titles that are only one, one uh, word or two words. But this was a very serious attempt to bring together people of many denominations to pray for revival. And you know what? Jonathan Edwards was instrumental in actually doing that. He was instrumental in seeing the revival of the first great awakening in the North, uh, North America. Continuing on in the low state of things, Harvard University that was set up so many years ago to provide, guess what? Ministers for the church. Ended up in such a state that not one student in Harvard admitted to being a Christian in the early 1800s. Terrible state of affairs. They actually held mock communions. They blasphemed against the word of God. They burned the Bible in New Jersey in a public bonfire. Christians in the universities met in secret in the other universities, obviously, because there were none in Harvard. 
and they kept the minutes of their meeting in code so that if they were found, no one would know what they talked about. That was in America 200 years ago. Something changed. Pastor James McCready, who was an Ulster Scots preacher in Logan County, Kentucky, uh, in the winter of 1799, was weeping and praying alongside the few good people that there were in that county. They pled with the Lord, and in the summer of 1800, they saw a great revival that spread out into North and South Carolina. 12,000 people got saved in that summer, and the Great Awakening began. This uh, Great Awakening saw a missionary movement raised up and saw the foundation of 600 colleges. But you know what? What, did, what began it? Prayer. Concerted, united, sustained prayer. But then things began to wane again in the United States. And so leading up to the, the uh, abolition of slavery in the United States, things got bad again. And things were at a low ebb. And in 1857, a man called Jeremiah Lamphere in New York began a prayer meeting. And a bit like Eltham Baptist, he had six people at the prayer meeting the first week, 14 at the second week, 23 at the third week. And from then on, it just kept growing and growing and growing until there were 6,100 men praying in New York every week. They filled every church and every public building in central New York to pray. And guess what happened? Nothing? Absolutely not. 10,000 people a week were coming to know Jesus in New York City after that prayer time. Or as a result of, I should say, because I don't think it stopped then. Not only that, but the revival spread out of New York City into upstate New York and out of New York into Chicago and all over the United States. In 1859, the revival spread to Northern Ireland, where I come from, and uh, 100,000 people came to know Jesus out of a population of less than one and a half million. Courts shut down. No more trials. Prisons lost their inmates. Crime was almost gone. And the whole society was transformed by this. How did it start? It started by prayer. First of all, in New York. Then it, the prayer was raised up in a little town called Kells in County Antrim in Northern Ireland. And from there it began. It also passed over into Scotland, England. And uh, Edwin Orr, J. Edwin Orr says that the revival, every, anywhere where there was a Protestant church at that time received revival, every country. So it went into Germany, it went into Norway, it went into Scandinavia, and it was a wonderful time of reaping because of prayer. What a wonderful thing. Chicago, for instance, um, farther west of New York, saw a great revival coming. One Sunday school ended up having a waiting list in which people had to put their name down if they wanted to teach Sunday school, and they had to wait for a class to come up. In one church, there were 16 people on the waiting list. D.L. Moody came along and said, I want to teach Sunday school. Okay, okay, go and get yourself a class. Out in the street and get yourself a class. D.L. Moody became one of the greatest evangelists of the last half of the 1800s. In the United States, there was a population of 30 million people. And in one year, one million came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Just one year. Why? Let me hear it. What kind of prayer? Concerted, united, sustained prayer. Wonderful. Trinity Episcopalian Church in 1857 had 121 members. Three years later, 1860, 1,400 members. That is 1,000% growth and more in three years. That's massive. We're tracking with a church in New Zealand that has had growth like that over the last four years. It's called Mosaic Church over there. Um, Stuart is uh, personally acquainted with one of the leaders there. And maybe the Lord will do that here if we get on our knees. But once again, like as in the book of Judges, things began to wane again. And a revival and an awakening was needed in the early part of the 20th century. And it came. First of all, it happened in Wales 
in the Valleys of Wales through a man called uh, Evan Roberts. And uh, he was a coal miner. He was 26 years of age. Anybody here under 26? Raise your hand. Do you know that the Lord could use you to start a revival? Did you know that? Under 26. Not amazing. There was a man who accompanied Evan Roberts called Seth Joshua. And Seth Joshua said, O Lord, bend us. Evan Roberts stood up and said, O Lord, bend me. And uh, out of that, 100,000 people again in the Welsh country side came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Wales was transformed. If you drive through the valleys of Wales today, you'll see many chapels, but they'll not be chapels now. They'll probably be a carpet warehouse or a cafe. But outside, you'll see a plaque, 1905, 1907. All of them were built in the wake of this revival. But then it spread over to Azusa Street in California. And the great Pentecostal revival uh, spread out of there. Um, it was a Negro preacher um, who was, was preaching there. And uh, the whole of um, San Francisco became aware of what was going on. It spread throughout the whole world. Until today, the Pentecostal movement has reached 750 million people. It is the fastest growing branch of Christianity today. And I've had the joy in, uh, of working alongside some of them in South America, particularly in Chile. Um, I remember going there as a staunch Baptist, and uh, my boss, Andrew Savage, who just died a few weeks ago, or months ago, he said, Sam, I want you to preach in the Assemblies of God. Ah, assemblies of God. Why does he always put me in the Assemblies of God? <laughs> had to go, had to do it, and you know I grew to love them. It was lovely to work alongside them and see what God was doing there um, through the Pentecostal movement. So how did it all start? Through concerted, united, sustained prayer. That's right. And that's how God's going to do it again. Um, Charles Spurgeon was the minister of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And he was followed by, uh, not immediately, or not, I don't know if it was immediately or if it was a couple after him, Dr. A.T. Pearson, who was a missiologist as well, and he'd studied up a lot of missionary movements, and he said this, there has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin with prayer. He said this, there has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin in united prayer. So if we want to influence Elfham for the Lord, that's where we need to start. We don't start with a big band or we don't start with a big splash or something like that. We start with prayer and the Lord will do the rest. You know, um, prayer is actually very good for us on a human level. Studies have shown, uh, Professor Rutledge wrote a study about this. He said, prayer gives five results. It said, he said, prayer improves self-control. Prayer has an energizing effect. Prayer makes you nicer. Prayer makes you more forgiving. Prayer increases trust. And prayer offsets the negative health effects of stress. So on a merely human level, uh, people are being called to prayer. But are those motives really high enough for us in prayer? I think there would be a wonderful secondary uh, offspin of prayer. But our motives must be higher. Our motives must be the glory of God. Our motives must be for the kingdom to come. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So a few uh, more modern examples. We've gone up to the early part of the 20th century. Now I want us to go to um, just a few, this present time in Paraguay. Anybody know where Paraguay is? Paraguay is a South American uh, country. And um, it had been one of those South American countries that had not responded very well to the gospel. There's Uruguay, which has not responded very well either, but Paraguay was a bit behind. When you think about Brazil and you think about Guatemala, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and you think about the huge percentage of Christians in those lands, and then you come to Paraguay, not much was happening until the prayer movement started. And now they say the, the church is growing at a rate between 10 and 15% per annum, and they put it down to concerted, united, sustained prayer. People are praying every morning, but it gets better. 
This week, I became acquainted with a church in Brazil called Lagoinha Baptist Church. And they're connected with Gateway Baptist, um, whose pastor is Robert Morris. And Robert Morris is teaching the uh, Blessed Life Seminar here on uh, Tuesday, Thursday night. Not Thursday, Wednesday nights. Sorry I confused you all about when you should come to 412. It's Wednesday nights. And he's not here in the flesh, he's here in the form of a DVD. But in this church in Brazil, in Belo Horizonte, um, there are now 70,000 people coming each week to that church. Started in prayer. The city of Goiania in Brazil. In the mid-1990s, a spiritual transformation took place in Goiania. 1.2 million people, evangelicals, were at about 7% of the population. But since this movement of transformation, the numbers of evangelicals have grown to 45%. Isn't that amazing? So basically, if this was Eltham, nine people out of every 20 would be a Christian. And that, uh, that's hard to fathom, isn't it? But it happened from a base of seven out of 100. And um, this is how it happened. The movement was begun by a group of women who formed bands to intercede. Around 1990, five women, five women only, got together to pray for the city. Elizabeth Cornelio, a mother and housewife, was one of the leaders of the group. She was told by her pastor not to pray with Christians from other churches. But she was very naughty. She broke the rule. <laughs> it's a good kind of naughty. Um, and uh, four years later, she began inviting other Christians from various churches to pray in unison for the city. And she ended up getting kicked out of her church. So there's a bit of pain sometimes in these things. Quite a lot of pain sometimes to get it off the ground. Anyway, at this United meeting, 850 people came along to pray at the first meeting. That would be a great number to have, wouldn't it? 850. The movement grew rapidly with nearly 200,000 people, no, actually women, 200,000 women praying every morning for the city. What city could resist that? 200,000 people praying every morning. So that was basically one-sixth of the population was praying every morning for the city. Something had to change. So Elizabeth Cornelio's daily radio broadcast brought targeted reports on criminal trends to intercessors. So she had this program and she would say, look, there's been a murder over in this uh, suburb here. We need to target that for prayer. There's been a robbery over here. We need to target that. There's been family violence over there. Let's target that. And you know, the crime rate just plummeted after those prayers. For some reason or another, the radio program had to be suspended. And within three months, the crime rate had jumped 40%. So the mayor and the police force came to her and said, please start your program again. And uh, she did. And people began to say, this city is not ruled by the mayor, but by the intercessors. Amazing, isn't it? Mobile prayer teams went door to door most weekends. Around 150 people were saved each weekend, and a new church would begin. As thousands prayed, every church in the city grew and grew. Churches were planted. Christians from one denomination prayed, one denomination, and they fasted for 40 days at the end of 1998. And guess what? They planted 372 new churches in January 1999 alone in one city, in one country, in Brazil. How did it all start? Concerted, united, sustained prayer. Wow, that's like the verse in Ephesians comes to mind exceedingly, uh, abundantly above all that we can ask or think. But we've never tried that, have we? We haven't really tried it. Scratch the surface. We need to get into this kind of prayer. We need to provide opportunities for it. We need to make opportunities. So there you go. A country, uh, a town, a country, and the world affected by five praying women initially. Small beginnings, but a major, major outcome. Argentina, 1949, a man called Dr. Edward Miller. He came from Oregon in the United States um, to the city of Mendoza in the center of Argentina. I passed through Mendoza two times 
on my way from Santiago to Buenos Aires. I didn't know this at the time. But he went there for two years, labored in the style that he thought he knew for the Lord, and he burned out. No success. He said, I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to um, try prevailing prayer because the Lord said, try prevailing prayer. And if that doesn't work, I'm out of here. I'm going back to some other job. So to cut a long story short, Miller tried prevailing prayer. The Lord wouldn't let him give up. And after a few months of praying for eight hours a day, the Lord broke through and revival came to Mendoza. Mendoza was the only city who had given any attention to the Anglican minister from England, um, the Reverend Gardner, who came 100 years previously to Argentina. He uh, preached the gospel. People in Mendoza gave him a, a hearing, and the seeds of that remained in the ground until 1949 when they just blossomed, when they were watered by concerted, united, sustained prayer. It's amazing. Anyway, it can happen also in Australia. In the year 1979, the Holy Spirit was poured out on an, an Aboriginal tribe up in northern Queensland. And I can't pronounce their names very well. It's really difficult. They're Aboriginal names, purely. Uh, but it was a uniting church minister, and the church was praying, and the Lord poured out his Spirit there too. So it didn't bypass Australia. We want to see it again. Now, even Jesus believed in sustained prayer. But one verse that really struck, jumped out at me regarding the prayer life of Jesus was Luke 3.21. And it relates to the time when he was baptized. And it says, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. What a wonderful thing. And you know, if we involve ourselves in that kind of prayer, heaven will open for us too. Wouldn't that be wonderful? The Bible says it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that verse comes up in the context of building a temple. We can't do this in our own strength. Neither bricks and mortar nor the souls of men and women. We can't do it in our own strength. We need the Spirit of God, and we need to invoke the Spirit of God. But how can we do that? So in conclusion, some practical steps. We want to ask the Holy Spirit for the gift of prayer. I think it's a gift, as well as a, uh, something that we must uh, apply ourselves to. It's also a gift. I think we should stop just and pray for that now. And uh, then we'll continue on with some more suggestions. Lord, we see that you are beginning to make us a praying church. We know that throughout the week, individuals are praying. Individuals are interceding. They're coming together in small groups of twos and threes. Groups of men, groups of women, young people, older people. And they're praying. And we're praying more and more. We ask you that you will give this gift to us. May we apply our wills as well to the act of prayer so that we will be involved in that concerted, united, sustained prayer, which will ultimately transform this town, not only this town, but also the land of Australia and beyond. Give us that gift, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Czech said, I think I already said this, but pray for Australia. Pray for Australia. There are many uh, attacks coming against this land. Attacks, uh, agendas that are satanic, to rip families apart, to make gender of no importance, to make family of no importance. If there is such a thing as 70 genders, then gender doesn't matter. Gender is nothing. But we know that gender is important. He made them male and female. That's all. There are other things that are coming against this land. Um, one of the people after church today said to me, it's very hard to understand this when we're too comfortable. This is a very comfortable land, probably the most comfortable land I've ever lived in. And I've seen a lot. 
we have it good here. We have it very good. And it's very hard. Let's pray for this land. May the Lord shake us into a, a spirit of prayer, even though everything seems good. Pray for the leaders of the nation and the lawmakers. I believe the devil does not um, leave the leaders alone. If God puts a leader in place, as the Bible says he does, then the devil doesn't like that. And he does everything to undermine his or her authority and to make the country chaotic. So pray for Malcolm Turnbull and his government that they would be wise. Pray for Donald Trump that he, and his government that they'd be wise and do the right thing. Theresa May, all these, Vladimir Putin, pray for him. I don't think uh, any of these people want to wreck the world. Just pray that they do the right, th the right thing. Pray in small groups. I don't want to see any hands because it might be embarrassing, but how many of you are in small groups to pray? Ones, no, not ones, twos and threes, fours, fives. I would encourage you to get into that. Maybe at school, grab a few people at recess or lunchtime. Pray. University, don't neglect to see you, if at all possible. Join with those people. What about medium-sized groups? Like, Hopefully our little prayer meeting will become a medium-sized group very soon. <laughs> and then hopefully in a year's time it will be a big group. And that it will be the most important meeting of the church in the entire week. Going back to Jim Simbala and the Brooklyn Tabernacle, they have a prayer meeting on Tuesday night. Do you know how many people go to it? The last count I saw was 2,000 people go to a prayer meeting on Tuesday night. And they just come out of the offices in New York. They don't go home. They just go to church and they pray all evening. And they make their way home after that. It's no wonder Brooklyn Tabernacle is seeing people healed from AIDS. They're seeing people saved out of a life of addiction and terrible situations like that. Let's try the 24-7. Let's do the all-nighters. Hey, isn't that a student thing to do an all-nighter? <laughs> isn't it? Like, they all want to do all-nighters, but over some stupid thing. Let's do um, an all-nighter for prayer. Huh? How about it? Hey, young adults. Arrange it, please. I'll come. All right? What about the 40 days? What about the fasting? Let's tackle all of them, and we'll see transformation. And we'll see God work in a mighty way and uh, might end up in the MCG. By the way, the biggest crowd ever in the MCG was uh, when Billy Graham came, over 100,000. It's never been matched. They went there to hear the gospel. Maybe one day again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of prayer. We confess to being amateurs and babies at prayer sometimes. But let us come to you, as the Bible says, with childlike faith, expecting that you will fulfill what you say. Give us the grace and the insight to fulfill those four conditions, to humble ourselves, to pray, to seek your face, and to turn from our wicked ways so that you will hear from heaven and you will heal our land and forgive our sins. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.com.au.